I'm really open about my adoption story. I'm really open about being Chinese, being adopted into America. And during this time was the first time I felt like I didn't want to be Chinese, which Mm -hmm. is like one of the first times I've ever felt that way because of all the negative stuff within media. And it just got to a point where I was like, do I want to be Chinese or do I want to be white? Hey, and welcome to I'm Adopted, Now What? A podcast where we talk about all things race, culture, and identity, one chat at a time. This is for people who want to get real, get deep, and figure out, now what? I'm your host, Liza. Welcome to the podcast. Hey, everyone. Today on the podcast, I am talking to the organizers of the social media group called Sisters of China. Now, as I just said, they exist on social media. I found them on Instagram, and they are a college-run group who just created a space where other adoptees can go and hang out and connect with other adoptees, share personal stories, or find others who have had similar experiences to them. And I think that the creation of that space is so cool. I am especially excited that they are a younger group of people who are doing this because, as I may have mentioned before, uh, either in an intro or in a different episode, you know, my target audience is younger adoptees. Obviously, I know that a lot of current listeners are people my age, older than me, people who I know, but I want this to last beyond just me and beyond my personal circles, social circles. I have spent time on this show talking about how when I was younger, there weren't really uh, the same kinds of resources that there are now for adoptees. And so, you know, my my long-term goal for this show is to be one of those resources for future generations of adoptees to come. So I'm very glad that Sisters of China is a group of young students who are putting in the hard work. For today, my conversation with Sisters of China focused on a couple different things. I first asked them about what their experiences have been in COVID with the recent rise in Asian American violence. Now, this was before the Atlanta shootings, so that isn't mentioned in the conversation, but a lot of what they talk about is still obviously relevant. The other thing that we spend the majority of the time talking about is this this idea of being between white and Asian. How do they feel in terms of identifying as either white or Asian or some combination of both or neither? In discussing this question, we touch on uh, abandonment trauma, having abandonment issues and what that really looks like up close, uh, being too self-reliant, this idea that 
adoptees are have this, you know, me against the world mentality. We talk about the idea of belonging and what it feels like to either belong or in some cases feel specifically like you don't belong to your family or different social groups you may have. We touch on the idea of being perfect and expectations both from outside sources but also from within ourselves and how all of that comes together to create an identity. It was a really great conversation. As I mentioned before, I love talking with younger people about this stuff. I know that I am still young, but I mean people who are younger than me, 10 years, 5 years younger than me. It's always so cool to see how they are interpreting the world and their lives and incorporating being an adoptee into that. So... I'll stop talking now. Here is the show. Hey, everyone. Thanks for coming back to the show. Uh, For today's episode, I am joined by the Sisters of China, Mia, Lily, Cosette, Marcy, and Zoe. Um, Now, they're each from different places. We have uh, Lily from Milwaukee, Mia from Seattle, Cosette and Zoe are both currently living in Texas, and Marcy lives in Michigan. And to stay sane during COVID, they are into cooking, baking, going for drives, FaceTiming friends, studying the Bible and their religion, and just kind of staying busy, staying occupied. Thanks, all of you, for coming to the show. Welcome. Thank you so much for having us. Mia, you are the founder of Sisters of China, and I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about how you got started with this project, this organization, and what it means to you. Yeah, so I kind of started Sisters of China around um, August of 2020, so I guess it's been like a little over six months now. Um, Wow, time flies. Um, Anyways, I was I, in quarantine, I've had a lot of time to kind of dive deeper into, I guess, my ad- adoptee identity and kind of what adoption means to me. Um, and I did travel back to China in 2018. Um, and I visited my hometown and it was very eye-opening to see um, the orphanage and just um, to see other children there and just to see my heritage or I guess where I came from that was pretty neat but um it kind of got me thinking about wanting to like connect with other Chinese adoptees I know my parents uh when they adopted me they traveled with other families and actually some of them I think maybe two other families that they traveled with uh live in Seattle um but we kind of lost contact over the years and so um growing up I didn't know a lot of Chinese adoptees I did actually have one in my Uh, class, but I just didn't have many opportunities to just meet other Chinese adoptees. And that kind of got me to wanting to start Sisters of China, just making it much easier for adoptees, um, just even outside of like kind of your local area to connect. And uh, we have the virtual meetings. And I think that's like the best way to connect, just having conversations. And it's kind of awesome that, I mean, 
not that the coronavirus is good, but it's kind of nice having these Zoom meetings and being able to uh, connect just with people like outside my area and even in my area too. Mm-hmm. Awesome. That's so cool. Now, where were you adopted? You were adopted from China. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Was, and, um, yeah. Sorry. <laughs> was everybody adopted from China here? Yeah. Okay. Awesome. Um, and we can kind of just go around popcorn style. How did all of the rest of you get involved in Sisters of China? Do you know, did you know Mia beforehand or come to the group kind of randomly? How did, how did it come together? Well, uh, I'm pretty active on Facebook and I don't remember how I found the group, but I ended up finding the group Subtle Asian Adoptee Traits that I didn't know existed. Um, and then I saw her post in that group about Sisters of China and I was like, oh, this sounds cool. So I joined the Facebook group and then went to one of the meetings and I was like, wow, this group is so cool. And that's kind of how we started growing from there. I would say that I probably got the attention from Instagram. Uh, Mia had requested to follow me through the Sisters of China Instagram account and I looked into it and um, she then soon decided to follow me after through her personal account. And I just looked a little bit into it and I thought it was a pretty cool thing. I mean. August. I mean, school was coming around. I thought maybe having something else would be really nice. And it was something with a group that I could identify with. So I thought that was pretty cool. So I would say Instagram was probably how I got involved. Okay, cool. So I think I actually found the group from Zoe. Zoe and I, like we grew up together. We were in like the same FCC group. Mm -hmm. And so I think Zoe like sent me the link or something. I was like, hey, I just joined this. You should join it too. And so I like looked around and I was like, okay. And then that's basically how I started it. And I want, or started going, I wanted to just because there, I never really went to school with like other Chinese adoptees. And so I wanted to like get to know more people that might've had the same experience that I went through and just like be able to talk about different, like other adoptee things with them. Um, I had just gotten social media that summer. <laughs> So it was like right around the time I was finishing my internship, I got the notification from Mia on the page saying that she was starting Sisters of China. So I just kind of signed up casually. I'm just like, it's another adoptee group. But then I ended up going to one of her Zoom meetings and I was like, okay, this is pretty cool. I can get behind this. Neat. Awesome. Uh, a, a bunch of you have mentioned Zoom meetings, which is a good segue to my next question. Um, Sisters of China, your tagline is sort of, you know, connecting Chinese adoptees uh, from all over. How do you do that? You know, what kind, what is a, what is a typical sort of day in working with Sisters of China look like? How do you connect? Um, I guess I can go first. Um, well, for Connecting wise, I guess, well, we started with having just one, um, like we call it the general or the monthly meeting. Um, so that was on like the third Saturday of the month at um, 11 a.m. Pacific time because that seemed to work for many people. Mm -hmm. um, we actually have some people in the UK and also kind of oh, around wow. that area. So it's, I think like 7 p.m. their time. Um, so it kind of works having that time. Um, but then recently we've started to introduce more events like the tea times um, and the we're gonna have a town hall on um, March 7th, I believe. 
Mm -hmm. Um, And so we've just kind of started to add in more events just because people seem to be liking the meetings and uh, they want more more conversations and more time to uh, connect. So that's been pretty cool. Um, During the meetings, the general meetings are supposed to be kind of more um, like, I guess, media, like middle ground topics, not uh, topics that like most people could probably relate to Mm -hmm. um, and speak to, I guess. Um, And then the tea times are um, a little lighter, um, just kind of, I guess, a little more like surface level kind of things, Mm -hmm. Um, but still pretty fun. Um, And then our town halls uh, are, I guess, kind of more um, political or kind of more, um, they're going to be kind of diving into deeper um, topics and issues. Mm -hmm. Um, And like we, for the meetings, we have um, breakout rooms and we kind of tried different things, but um, we find that it's nice to have kind of breakout groups so it's easier to get to know more people. Wow, that's so cool. Uh, how many how many members are you total? Um, let's see. I I think I just checked the other day. It was like um, on like the email list slash member thing. Uh, there was like three hundred forty one. Wow, maybe. Um, but usually in the meetings we have around 20 people. Okay. Um, Pretty good. Yeah. That's really neat. I love that. Kind of hopping into like current events. How, how is everybody feeling about all of the, the Asian American violence that's been going on? I feel like it's sort of always been happening since, since Corona started, but I, it's my sense that recently there's been quite an uptick in violence, at least publicized in the media violence. And so I haven't really had the opportunity to talk about it yet on the show. And because I have all five of you here, I thought it would be great to kind of get a bunch of different opinions at once about it. So whoever feels like they have something to say about it, um, just what are your thoughts? How does it make you feel as an Asian American, if that's how you identify yourself? I guess I can start. Um, So I think it's really hard. I mean, for my, uh, me personally, my professor um, at school made a racist comment, like in the very beginning of COVID before quarantine happened. Um, mm. He made a, co- it was like a slight comment, stuff that most people would just like look over, but he was like, oh, I hope no one's sick. And then started looking around like, oh, I hope none of y'all like went to China at all. And then was like, if you are sick, get out of here. If you went to China lately. Um, and he was looking directly at me during that. And I was the only Asian person in the room. So I was like, oh, okay. Um, And so that was one of my first, like, things, I guess, during COVID that, like, I received racism for, even though it's, like, kind of subtle. But it was still racism. And I think it's been hard over the time because a lot of people that are Asian were, were, like, the model minority. Mm -hmm. And so we're told like, oh, suck it up, basically. And that's what I've been told a lot of the time during this whole entire time. And so it's hard to like, want to talk about your experiences, because you're like, because everyone, everyone just shuts you down with Mm -hmm. it. Um, And it's really hard, because I know for me, I'm like, I'm really open about my adoption story. I'm really open about being Chinese, being adopted into America. And during this time was the first time I felt like I didn't want to be Chinese, which mm-hmm. is for, like one of the first times I've ever felt that way. 
just mm. because of all the negative um, stuff that the media por- uh, portrayed in like within media. Yeah. And it just got to a point where I was like, do I want to be Chinese or do I want to be white? Like it was basically a choice of my own, like my own self. Yeah. And so I really, really struggled during this time with my own identity of whether or not I'm like going to be considered like Chinese American or just American, even though I'm Chinese. Right. And so I think that just like, it was hard during the time, but now it's like, it's nice that it's not nice, but it's really cool that the media is kind of more portraying about like all the racism towards Asians because they really weren't covering that at all in the beginning. Yeah, that is so true. Um, It honestly, like, I mean, obviously it makes me upset, but it honestly makes me very confused because like even back in March when the virus first came here mm-hmm. and there was like really bad uh, cases of like derogatory slang or like violence cases I was like I was kind of like what is the point like yelling at people and telling them to go back to their country or throwing things at them or hitting them is not going to make it go away or end sooner so it's like what's the point of doing that and like harming other people for something that they don't have control over and that's not their fault to do um and similar to cassette I also did not feel like proud to be Chinese and I've always felt proud to be Chinese like I've always shared my culture and my identity both adoptee and Chinese with Mm -hmm. all my friends and family and for the first time I was like I'm not proud to be Chinese because people are going to look at me and think I'm going to get them sick or something Mm -hmm. and like even a few weeks ago me and my friends went on Omegle just for fun and like two two of the guys that we saw in there like made some kind of racist comment about the virus Mm. and I was just like seriously like there's no like what's the point of doing that and like there was so much going on too in the rest of the country I was like I don't want to be Chinese but I also don't want to be American so it's like I'm stuck in the middle and I I wasn't proud of my identity and my culture and it was like a very big stuck in the middle moment that I didn't really feel like like anything yeah the audience can't see but everyone's heads are nodding up and down because I think the whole idea of uh, being somewhere in the middle, somewhere between the gray space, um, between, you know, being Chinese, being Asian, and then being white and being American is a very familiar place if you're an adoptee, um, particularly of an Asian country. I mean, I guess adoptees from anywhere feel that way. Um, but my experience and all of your experience as well is as an Asian adoptee. And so I think that's something that we all have in common that we can all relate to. Any other thoughts or feelings on how 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 the violence has has affected you? I would say it's kind of weird for me personally because I never felt the identity of being Asian until probably high school. So like I never really grew up with that idea or subconscious of saying, "Oh, you're Asian. Yes, you have like this 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 and this." So I think that like really when I started to find like the Asian identity I think it was definitely also like kickstarting in high school and then you get to college which is like college in general is just somewhere where you like people find like themselves they find like what they're looking for in a life and everything like that but for me personally I think that because I had such a late 
adaptation to like my Asian identity. I think that especially coming into Corona, I think that it kind of made me just really disappointed right off the bat, to be honest, because like I'll see all this media, not to mention like what the Chinese government is like pushing on like repress oppressed people and like like just the Uyghur Muslims as like the mass genocide that is going on at the moment. Mm-hmm. So I never really felt that sense of security of me losing my Chinese identity is more so me just like realizing just how much I've lost already. So in that word of saying, it's like I found something, but then I lost it immediately. So mm-hmm. I guess like COVID kind of took that in a sense and just completely just jumbled it all together. So now it's like very similar to Zoe where I'm like caught in the middle. Like I'm just not sure where I want to fall. So I would say that my experience is like falling in the middle. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, for me, I think that all of this violence and hatred was already there. I think people were just kind of looking mm. for an excuse to mm-hmm. do all this. Like if something bad happens, they see that as an excuse to be like, hey, now I can be openly racist. Mm-hmm. Um, but ever since this happened, I know, this is really dark, but I've been going to a lot of trainings about like racism, diversity, mm-hmm. and microaggressions. Mm-hmm. And then since then, um, I've had conversations with people and they've made like kind of microaggressive comments and I like sort of laugh at them and I'm like, hey, I noticed that was racist. <laughs> And I kind of laugh at myself. (laughs) I mean, I guess it comes from, like, a privileged place of being able to, like, laugh at racism. Mm. But I I just think it was really funny that I was able to say, like, hey, that was a microaggression. Mm -hmm. I noticed it. (laughs) Mm Mm-hmm. Is and that's that's something that you say to yourself, or do you say it to the person who is talking, who is doing the microaggression? No, um, the reason I say it to myself is it these things usually happen at um, my grandmother's living community. They're usually mm. of the older generation. Mm-hmm. So I'm not I'm not going to correct an old person. Got it. Right. Yeah, I feel like we've all I mean, there could be so many different microaggressions we could all like list right off the bat. I think one of the most ubiquitous ones is like the the where are you really from question which I'm sure we've all gotten a lot and I've done a bunch of episodes on that so I don't want to bore the audience going into that too much but so turning to like a more personal note which you know no not everybody has to speak if they don't want to but we've had a couple people say that they have always identified as being Asian and been really proud of their Chinese or Asian identity. And then others who didn't feel so strongly about that. I know for myself personally, I didn't accept and acknowledge anything about being Chinese or being Asian at all until maybe a year, 18 months ago. So that it's, I'm always interested to hear other people's like interpretations of themselves in terms of having both influence from, you know, white American privileged, more or less parentage. And then also, but knowing that, you know, you don't necessarily like quote unquote, look the part. 
Um, and so if anyone wants to share their thoughts or feelings on that, then I would love to hear about it. Um, I can go first. So it's, I feel like my story is kind of, well, I'm still kind of figuring out, I guess, um, how I view myself and I guess like maybe how Asian I perceive myself. But um, I, so yeah, I grew up in Seattle and I grew up in like kind of South Seattle, which is um, like more diverse, more ethnically and racially diverse. And so a lot of my classmates um, were like Asian or I guess um, Chinese um, American. So I felt like, oh, I was also like in a Chinese like immersion program thing. So we were like learning um, I guess math and like science and social studies through or in Chinese and ex mm. we were expected to I guess like speak it and so it was kind of weird because I felt really like white I guess compared to my Asian peers and I don't know I kind of tended to or I felt like I drew more towards I guess um, I don't know how to put like more Americanized classmates mm -hmm. uh, they were still Asian but I think one of my a couple of my friends like I had a close friend that was white and then or that is white and um one that was that's American African-American and so I felt like I could more relate I guess to them and I was kind of more comfortable around them and um yeah and so I guess as I got older I kind of switched friend groups I guess that kind of always mm. happens or sometimes it can but um I actually did start to hang out more with the American born Chinese or the I guess the people the, my classmates that I had not previously um and I mean I still felt kind of white because they would always understand things about like that their parents did or told them like kind of things that Chinese or recently immigrated like Chinese um, people would do mm -hmm. um, but I could never really relate and then they also talked to their parents in like a different uh, dialect so yeah I didn't really understand what they were saying but I in those instances I like felt white but then like my dad's also Asian he's uh, Japanese we're not like the same Asian but mm -hmm. I definitely feel like growing up I did feel Asian because of him if that mm -hmm. makes sense yeah it's been a little complicated but yeah got it very interesting wow I think I kind of relate to you in the sense of like automatically thinking I was white that is probably up until like my hair I took a heritage tour in around the mm. winter of I don't know I was I was a sophomore in high school so mm -hmm. like I think that's kind of like really when I started understanding like my Asian identity and everything um so I guess I really on the really white scale quotation marks there um mm -hmm. up until like sophomore year it's also because my mom she, uh, my I was raised by a single mom and like I don't have like mm -hmm. a influence so like she had like to work a lot and like a lot of her um jobs um consisted of like going out to places mm -hmm. and so over through that those kind of experiences and the colleagues that my mom actually made I think that's like the only Asian like exposure I got as a young child because like mm -hmm. if my mom had not had two Asian colleagues then I probably would not have been exposed to like Chinese New Year's I probably wouldn't have done like Chinese meals like I, my best friend was Asian she her parents immigrated from Taiwan and like I would um always eat their food I'd always listen to like how she interacts with them and I'll just like go home and I'd be like why is it so different with me and you and like mm -hmm. ask my asking my mom that she'd be like oh it's just like I mean 
I personally never grew up with that. So I'm like, oh, so then like, what does that mean for me? Like, does that mean I'm white? Does it mean Asian? Cause like, I think my real thing with that was I was more so encouraged to like reach out to other people. I think that's also kind of mm. how I was able to grow like understanding of the identity of being an Asian person. Cause mm-hmm. um, there's other, like only one other Chinese adoptee that I had known in high school. And she's actually, um, she was more, into understanding her heritage than I probably was at the time and so she was exposing me to like different like recipes or like different like uh traditional dress so I feel like the exposures for Asian representation for me personally was more so through family um relatives and or friendly uh family friends and like personal periods of myself I never really got it straight from like my mom's source mm-hmm. and then I think when I took the trip to my hair to to my uh, city where I was born like they found me and everything I think that's where it really started to kick start so that was able to um, give me the idea of studying abroad and I think that studying abroad really opened my eyes that's also where I actually met Zoe mm. and like I had never met another Asian mm. adoptee until then unless you like count my one friend from mm-hmm. back home and I was like really surprised with like how much like she was saying oh like I have these similar experiences too like I had all white friends I could not relate to that whatsoever so when I yeah. met her I think that's really when I started being into the adoptee identity so for me it was like a late bloom but I'm kind of happy that it happened when I was older because I was able to like navigate it probably easier than I would have if I was like a middle school or like a high school level I feel like college kind of like matures you into like understanding more things at a more in-depth level nice yeah no I, I a lot of that resonates with me I think I mean I have not done a heritage trip uh, and so, you know, I, that makes sense that that would have been a catalyst for you, for you in terms of identifying or, you know, exploring your Asian side more. Uh, I guess for me, similar to Lily, I also have a single mom. Mm. Um, so I feel like I've always felt Chinese just because like I'm transracial. So it's not like she could pretend that I wasn't Chinese. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and like every time I looked in the mirror and I didn't look like her, you know, something was up. There were a few times where I like, I've asked my mom, I was like, if you saw me and didn't know me, would you think I was Asian? And she was like, yes, cause you look Asian. And mm-hmm. I was like, oh, okay. Cause like, I don't know why, but sometimes I feel like I don't look Asian or like I don't give off Asian-ness. Everybody, I, I think, I, feels that yeah. way based on these screens right now. <laughs> yeah, it's just so weird. But I think the weirdest time for me was definitely studying abroad because, like, growing mm. up, my mom definitely tried to surround me with Asian culture and Asian friends. She sent me to diverse schools so I could be around other diverse people. But then actually going to China, and it, it's like you look like everyone, and so mm-hmm. they're going to expect you to know what they're saying but then Mm -hmm. you don't know what they're saying because I'm not fluent like I want to be fluent but I'm not there yet Mm -hmm. so I mean not only do I have tan skin but like I'm not understanding what they're saying I'm speaking with an American accent and so it's like like you would think that they wouldn't stare at you because you look like everyone but then they do stare at you because you're not speaking Chinese or like you're speaking it with an accent Mm -hmm. so I feel like that was the weirdest part is just like going back to the place where I was born and have everyone stare at me like I'm some stranger because I can't understand what they're saying yeah that that's that make I mean that's so true I feel like in America you get stared at for like having white parents and then everyone's looking at you like why don't you 
look, why are like they with like someone who looks Chinese or why are you with white people? And then in China, like, as you just said, you know, you're, it's clear to people who live in China and that's the only culture they know that you're also not a hundred percent just Chinese. And so you get kind of, you get it from both ends. And your story actually reminded me of, I used to work in a restaurant and it was owned by an Asian American family. And so we had a lot of Asian people that would come and eat there. And a couple of times there were customers, like older Asian ladies who would come in and start talking to me in Mandarin. And then when it was clear that I didn't understand and didn't speak Mandarin, they got mad at me for not knowing how to speak Mandarin. Like, how dare you look Chinese, but not speak the language that was offensive to them or something. So that's like, that just reminded me of that. But I totally understand what you're saying. I think every, I think it resonates with everybody. Everyone was fervently like shaking their heads in agreement. Yeah. Yeah. And just like a tiny comment based on what you said about them staring at us. Yeah. When we went to China when I was seven, because my mom got a Fulbright grant to teach there. And they would stare at us there too because mm-hmm. they thought that she had kidnapped us or something. Oh no! Oh, didn't God. match her race. They're like, wait, it's a, it's a white woman with two Asian daughters. Did, did what? What happened there? Like, why don't they look the same? So the stares never go away. Mm-hmm. Um. Yeah. So for me, I think I've I've always grown up knowing I was Chinese. Um. Because kind of like Zoe, I well. I was adopted into like a transracial family. My, both my parents are white. Mm-hmm. Um, I have an adopted brother who's also from China, but we're not biologically related. Mm-hmm. Um, and so growing up, they tried to put me in as many like adoption camps as possible. I went through my tree house, which was what for adopted kids. I went mm-hmm. to China camp in Tulsa, Oklahoma with Zoe every summer for a week where we just learned about our culture. Um, FCC, which is Families with Children Adopted from China, North Texas, they had many programs. So mm-hmm. growing up, I knew I was Chinese and I pretty much like knew a lot about like the Chinese culture. We did Chinese New Year. We celebrated by God, like different things that you would usually do in China. We celebrated a lot at my house. Um, the one time that I realized I thought possibly I wasn't Chinese was when my parents also had me go into Chinese school. Mm. Um, Every Saturday you go learn Chinese. They expect you to come back the next week learning, like knowing even more Chinese. Everyone there basically, except for, I think it was me and these two twins that also I knew um, all had Chinese parents. Mm-hmm. They all came back speaking better Chinese. Mm-hmm. I, on the other hand, did not. <laughs> um, and I remember getting in trouble so much at the um, at Chinese school for not knowing Chinese, for not mm. coming back better. And like, you should know this. You should be better. And like, basically kind of yelling at me. And I'm like, I don't I don't know what to do. And so that, I think that's the one of the first times I realized I was like, oh, maybe I'm not Chinese. And then kind of like Zoe said, like with the stairs, Mm -hmm. you get that all the time going to restaurants, especially with my brother and I both being Chinese, both my parents being white. Mm -hmm. I've had one time someone actually thought my brother and I were dating and we had, there were two white parents, like two white people and they thought it was a double date. Mm -hmm. 
Mm -hmm. Wow. Awkward enough to explain. He's my brother. Those are my parents. Um, So it's those weird occasions of them wondering, like, who are you guys? Why Why are two white people with two Asians? Um, And in China, we went to adopt Daniel in 2008. So I was six or seven years old. And we got so many stares there. And I think that was another time when I realized maybe I'm not Asian, even though I look very similar. Because we had a lot of people coming up to me saying, oh, you have really tan skin. Like, why are you not like, like have fair skin? Um, So they're criticizing my parents for not having me, like for having me out in the sun. Mm. Um, mm-hmm. So I was like, well, maybe I'm not Chinese, but I am like, it was off and on with like the stairs, but my parents did a really good job though of getting me into the Chinese culture. We've had multiple exchange students that have stayed with us for a year from China. One wow. of our first one when I was five, um, her, she was actually um, from the same province I was adopted from, which was Zhangjiang, Guangdong. And her dad just happened to be one of the, like in the government too in China. So it was really cool just being able to like know someone who was in the same exact province as me and being able to like talk back and forth about just the Chinese culture, the things that I've experienced that she hasn't experienced, even though I was five at the time. And then in eighth grade and then in 11th grade, we had two more people come that were exchange students. I took Chinese all through junior high and high school. And that kind of got me to like get more into my Chinese culture as well. And like Mm -hmm. being able to speak the language. Although during that time, I also kind of felt like I wasn't Chinese because it was kind of the same thing as Chinese school the Chinese teachers would see that I was Chinese, Mm -hmm. expected me to be better than everyone else because I was Chinese. Mm. No Mm -hmm. matter how much I told them I was adopted and have white parents and Mm -hmm. don't know Chinese, they always fought me on that for some reason. Um, But yeah, I think I've grown up a lot just knowing I was Chinese. So I never necessarily had the like a big time frame of thinking I was something other than Chinese American. Well, I think your story is a good example of how maybe it's not such a dichotomy. Maybe it's, it's really a, you know, a blended identity and, and there is never a final determination on whether we are, or you are this or that. And it will always be something that ebbs and flows and you know there are times in your life when you really do feel connected to your Chinese heritage and then sometimes in life where you feel really really white and both are okay it's just you know I don't I think I think it's a unique experience where it's it's constantly changing you know everyone else's identity is is fixed you look at your parents your ancestry your, you know, country where your ancestors came from. And like, that's where you get all your information. But I think a lot of how we end up identifying is situational and based on where we are in our growth and development and what happens to us in life. Um, And so I think your story is a good example and a good reminder that it's, it all just comes and goes. It's never just fixed in one, in one place. 
Yeah, speaking of comes and goes, I yeah. have a very similar story uh-huh. of my mom was very, um, very passionate about making sure I was raised in my Chinese culture. Mm-hmm. So <laughs> she got like, she got me a Chinese doctor when I was younger, mm-hmm. and got me a babysitter who spoke Chinese would play Chinese music mm-hmm. and made me noodles all the time. <laughs> she called me <laughs> um, Noodle Girl. Um, we went to Chinese school. And like when I was nine, we visited China for the first time. Mm-hmm. Um, but then I feel like somewhere along the way, it was kind of more on me where I guess I kind of decided to step away from my Chinese culture. Yeah. Um. And then I remember like one day I was walking and then I like caught myself in the mirror and I had to go like, wait, I'm Chinese. I thought I was white. (laughs) And that was just a really weird moment. Mm -hmm. But uh, after transferring to my um, middle school, I made a lot of friends who were like first generation Asian Americans Mm -hmm. and when it came to that I kind of felt like I wasn't Chinese enough Mm -hmm. and I had this moment of like identity crisis who am I how Chinese am I and then it kind of got worse in high school because the high school was um, also a boarding school Mm. and there were people from China coming Mm -hmm. here and I was in their classes. I made a lot of friends with them. And then we had something called Parents Visiting Day. And one of my friend's mom came from China. And I was like so excited. And I'm like, I'm going to say a few sentences to her mom in Chinese. We're going to get along so great. She's going to be like my own Chinese mom. <laughs> and then I couldn't communicate with her at all Mm -hmm. she like didn't speak a word of English and I had this feeling of guilt yeah like I should be able to talk with her like I should have done better I should be more Chinese yeah so then I took up Chinese in my junior and senior year and we did something called Sino Night it's like the Lunar New Year celebration super fun but I always feel like some anxiety, like a voice in the back of my head, like you're not doing enough, you're not Chinese enough. Mm. Um, and I guess that was like the negative part of being raised in Chinese culture because mm. I did feel pretty confident in my Asian identity. Mm-hmm. But then when you put me in a room with people who were raised in China, I'm just like, oh my gosh, what am I doing? Mm. And um, I have a funny, like, Chinese person tries to speak to me um, story. Like, in retrospect, it's super creepy. But but it's funny. Um, I I guess I have a dark sense of humor. But we were visiting China. uh, I think I was, like, 16, 15 and we were at an airport and I was just like sitting. My mom was like 
getting a coffee or something and I was sitting there and these two old men (laughs) were sitting behind me and talking and I turned around and was like because they were talking really loudly Mm. I turned around and they like smiled at me and they like tried to speak to me and I'm like oh I'm sorry I don't speak Chinese and then they started like hysterically laughing at me because Mm -hmm. like in China like Chinese isn't called Chinese it's called Zhongwen so they're like haha Chinese ha 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 and I'm like I'm sorry I don't speak Chinese so I just turned around and I ignored them Uh uh-huh like oh my gosh but now like looking back at it I'm like oh my gosh they were like two creepy old men laughing at me in an airport in China (laughs) wow yeah probably just you know because you were young and female wow that's well I didn't know what Chinese is called in China so that was that's interesting but I right like you you touched on it I think there is uh like an authenticity problem right where uh where we you know you feeling authentically Chinese in a group of first generation Chinese Americans is gonna you know make you feel like oh man I'm not Chinese enough and then you know in at college if you were with your group of white friends, you know, oh man, I'm not white enough. And um, I think there's a real authenticity sort of uh, dilemma that is, that is something unique to being adopted because it speaks again to, to feeling guilty, having a lot of baggage and shame or um, just putting so much pressure like on yourself because you don't fit in either category. Uh, and then a lot of the time you can end up feeling like nothing because of that, which is obviously terrible. Um, a lot of you, if not all of you, are in college right now. And so, you know, I, compared to me, who college was, you know, five, 10 years ago, um, I'm interested to know at this point in your lives, um, and I think this is a great, I like closing on this question if each of you could tell your younger selves one thing about the idea of self-love and acceptance, what would you tell, you know, young Lily or young Zoe or, you know, young Mia on that subject and why? Um, For myself, I think like even now it's, it's really hard for me to, I guess, do self-love and like self-care um, I'm also, I feel like maybe it's just my personality just to, I'm kind of like a perfectionist and it, it's really hard because I like raise, I have like really high standards for myself and mm-hmm. um, I don't really know when it like began. I think probably just, I guess as a kid and it's, it's still something kind of hard I have to play, deal with, but it's just like, I need to, I feel like I need to show that I'm like worth I'm like worthy and um I feel like I base a lot of my I guess worth on um how productive I am or if I'm doing well in school um but I would tell my younger self to I guess just like I guess stress less somehow Mm -hmm. or just find like really actually set aside time and stop I guess putting off things that you might enjoy or things that are necessary to, I guess, keep going and actually be happy and Mm -hmm. content. And 
just like prioritize your mental health. And Mm -hmm. um, also just, I tried out a bunch of activities when I was younger and I just wanted to like be good at them and stuff. But I guess I would like tell my younger self that you don't really need to be, I was like kind of ashamed at being bad at sports. So I would say like, you know, your ability to do like sports or um, your grades really aren't a reflection of who you are and you need to find more time to take care of yourself. Mm, I love that. I definitely think as adoptees, uh, one of the truer stereotypes I have found is, you know, the idea of being self-reliant because we've all learned as like young babies in like our attachment phases that we only have ourselves to rely on because we were literally like abandoned by people. And that I think can manifest in lots of different ways as we get older, one of which being like having super high expectations for yourself and, you know, having trouble not being good at everything you try because if it's not going to be you, then it's not going to be anybody that does it for you. Um, and that kind of idea of like, you're, it's you against the world. So I think that's great advice. I love that. I think what I would tell myself would probably be, it's okay to feel lost and like take risks. Cause I think that the times when I felt most confused or most lost are like when I took those risks to study abroad, to take Chinese at a, mm-hmm. a global college of mine, to really understand everything. That's well, not everything, but like to really understand like where I want to go so if you're feeling lost or you don't know what you're going to do like that's fine so I mean I there's like this one quote I don't know what it is it's like something where it's like the like unknown path takes you to the most like resilient places or something like that and so mm. but yeah I would say take risks follow what you think, think you can do and you know you never know if it turns out bad it turns out bad but we're still young so gotta live that life love that I think that's definitely Definitely true, 100%. I would probably tell myself that self-love takes time because Mm. I feel like for me, it's taken me a very long time to get where I am today. Not to say that I still have certain issues that like certain things about me that I don't love, but it's definitely taken me a very long time to love all the parts of myself that I do love. Um, And also like kind of similar to what Lily was saying, like it's okay to not feel like yourself like it took me a very long time to break out of my shell I was always known as a really shy person that wouldn't talk at all and um once I got to high school that kind of faded away and I kind of found myself and found who I am and college definitely helped with that too just being on my own and being independent I was like wow I'm very different than I was in high school and even more so than in eighth grade and so definitely that it takes time and kind of going back on the like abandonment stuff that stuff's always going to be there so I probably tell myself that you know that's always going to be there you're going to struggle with it the older you get because this year I've definitely had the most trouble with it than I've ever mm-hmm. had but it's okay to not be okay and it's okay to need help and want help and to work through all of the issues because you have that support network out there that can help you work and talk through everything. Mm, That's very wise. Self-love takes time. I love that. So I think something I would tell my future, or not future self, wait, younger self, is that it's 
to not be afraid to speak up no matter what I think other people will say. Um, I think that's something that completely haunted me as a kid, I think. And I wish I knew that because now I know I'm still struggling through all of that. So for whenever I'm actually not okay, I need to actually speak up and tell people that I'm not okay, even though I'm like, even though I overthink a bunch and I'm like, oh, but maybe they'll think I'm weak and then they won't want to be my friend or maybe this, maybe that, maybe they'll abandon me like the, um, like my parents abandoned me. So it's like a lot of abandonment problems that come up with that. Mm -hmm. And I think that it goes with to not shut down my feelings. Mm -hmm. Is that something that I've done forever? Um, Because I'm always afraid if I mention something that I'm struggling with or if I'm not doing good enough in school or things like that then my parents won't love me that Mm. um I'll be abandoned again by my parents even though it's all subconscious Mm -hmm. um and that's something I wish I truly 100% believed as a kid um because it's carried on for years and I'm still struggling with that and with that I think it was due to being a failure to thrive baby which basically means I was dying in the orphanage um, and then gone to a foster home. If I didn't get into a foster home, I would have been dead in the orphanage. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's just having that and feeling like, oh, the pressure to be perfect for my parents, mm-hmm. being perfect for everyone else, to being to be there for everyone else and not taking the time for myself um, is something that I wish I didn't do. And I mm-hmm. wish I really realized to take time for myself and that like I've, that like Lily and Zoe said it's really okay to not be okay to not yeah. to like not hold it in and to actually have someone and find someone to talk about talk to it talk about it with mm-hmm. um and not just hold it all in because it's a struggle <laughs> yeah I think that's well said and you know as Zoe mentioned the whole abandonment thing how it's there forever and how you mentioned like your the abandonment thing is is such a is still your processing and I think talking about it and knowing that you have a support system that you can rely on to talk about it with is such a huge step in processing and something that I have liked to say um, throughout my life is as long as you're processing you're making progress so you know I think that it's important. It's a good point to, to say that, you know, always make sure that you're relying on your support systems and processing, you know, past early life trauma. I think that's really important. My piece of advice to my younger self is you are enough. Mm -hmm. That is something that I have struggled with in all aspects of my life. Yeah. Um, the first time someone ever told me you are enough I burst into tears yeah so just like learning that I am enough is just so difficult Mm -hmm. um I struggle with abandonment issues not only from my original adoption so for me like getting help finding a support group Mm -hmm. and also realizing 
that anything that like really happened wasn't your fault Mm -hmm. um it has to do with external forces and that it wasn't you you are enough you have been enough and you will always be enough definitely and I feel like a lot of adoptees need to hear that so that would be my piece of advice nice I agree I think you're right I think I think everybody needs to be reminded that they're enough, but adoptees in particular, because you, you know, there's the literal possibility of grappling with like, but was I wanted? Like, you know, why didn't they want me? And to know that the fact that they didn't for whatever reason, maybe because they couldn't, but is not a commentary on your inherent value, I think is something that every, that we all need to be reminded of. So I love that. Thank you so much for sharing all of your stories. Uh, and I really appreciate all of you, you know, taking some time in your schedules to just be open and kind of collectively commiserate and, you know, bond over all of our adoptee history. So thank you so much. I was really glad to have you. Thank you for having us. Yeah, thank you for having us. Awesome. It was fun. <laughs> Good. Awesome. Okay. Bye, everybody. Thank you again for having us. <laughs> of course. Bye. Bye. And I forgot to film an outro real quick. So thank you so much for listening. I really hope you enjoyed this episode. And we will see you next week. Thanks for listening to this episode of I'm Adopted Now What? Hosted by me, Liza. If you liked what you heard, then please be sure to subscribe to this podcast wherever you listen, leave a good review, and share this episode with a friend. If there's a topic you'd like to hear discussed on a later episode, DM me and tell me all about it. You can do that and find this podcast on Instagram and Facebook at imadopted.podcast. See you there. <laughs>